Shalawan, and welcome to the Science of the Covenant podcast. We like to welcome you. I, myself, and the pastor, Richard Washington, and Nine Boys Washington. All praises to the Most High, Yahuwah, and His Son, Yahusha. Before we get started, we want to remind you on Wednesday, September the 28th, we will be celebrating Feast of Trumpets twice on September the 28th. So join us at 1 p.m. and also come and join us at 7 p.m. as we close out the Feast of Trumpets. Also, the Day of Atonement will be here in less than a month, October the 7th. So stay tuned to the times we'll be having a service for the Day of Atonement on October the 7th and then celebrating our fall feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, October the 12th and October the 19th. We will be announcing the times of our services uh, in the coming weeks. As always, if you have any questions or comments while this podcast is live or even if you're listening to it after it's live, uh, listening to the stream. Uh, you can email us at the science of covenant at gmail.com and we will be happy to get to your questions and comments. If you are watching live and you are on our YouTube, feel free to send us a message or comment in the chats and we will hopefully get your comment and your question live on air. So if you notice, we have been for the past couple of weeks uh, studying the science of the seed. The pastor has been giving us some really good information on the science of the seed. And I believe we're on part 12. So, Pastor, am I correct? We're on um, part 12 of the science of the seed. Yes, this is uh, part 12 that, that we're on. And uh, I thought maybe we may be able to finish today. But uh, with the way I'm looking at it, we are probably terminate this uh, particular study next week because we got another time frame to deal with. The time frame that we are in now is a time frame from the Garden of Eden all the way until the destruction of this world. And then after the destruction of this world, we have a new earth and a new heaven. Uh, we want to continue uh, with it in a, in a different time frame. So this one, yes, is the 12th uh, part of our study uh, today, and that's where we'll be focusing in on. All right. Okay. Uh, so as we get started, let us seek him who is our creator and redeemer in prayer. Eternal Father, you have permitted us life. You have given us another Shabbat to be able to worship and to give you praise for you only are worthy. We're going to learn, oh, Heavenly Father, to praise you at least seven times a day. But when we give our praise to you, there's something that ignites in our mind the joy and the rejoicing, oh, Heavenly Father, of the heavenly blessings that you have given to angels and you have given to our forefathers in days gone by, and you are still constantly rewarding those who give you praise with the delights and the joys of life, even in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. So now as we go into your word, that we may be able to discover, O oh, Heavenly Father, the seed, and your seed, which is your son, that we may have a proper understanding of this, and in so doing, we can worship you according to the correct nature of how you exist. These and other blessings we ask, 
in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, and for his dear sake we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles, our first text is found in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 3. We want to look in Luke, chapter 3. And in the book of Luke, chapter 3, we want to consider a few verses in that particular chapter. Okay, Luke, chapter 3, and we want to start with verse number 21. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now, here's what it says. I'll read, respectively, 21 and 22 of Luke chapter 3. Now, here Luke writes, Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Yeshua, also being baptized and praying, the heaven was open, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. So we see that when he was baptized in the Jordan River, Elohim's voice was spoken from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, and I am well pleased. So even from heaven he was called the Son of Elohim. Now in the same book of Luke, looking at chapter 9, we want to look at the transfiguration, but we just want to look at one uh, particular verse, and that's verse 35. This is when he had taken James, John, and Peter up on the, on the mount. And when he had taken them up there, they uh, had an experience with Elijah and Moses. And when they got up there, uh, some of the things was confusing to them, and some of the things uh, kind of terrified them. But these two messengers, Elijah and Moses, uh, met with Yeshua on this particular mountain. And what transpired was, in verse 35, it said, And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. So twice we see the confirmation or the, what we might say, endorsement of Yeshua as being the son of Elohim. In his baptism, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in this verse, it says, this is my beloved son. He said, hear him. Okay. So we see the endorsement of Elohim from heaven saying, this is his son. Now, we must be logical in our understanding. If he said, this is his son, he is not saying that he became my son when he came out out of the bowels of Mary, he was saying, he is my son when I sent him. And when I sent him to be born of, uh, of, of Mary, he was already my son before he even entered into a womb. So this is what we want to under, understand. So one of the salient questions, one of the questions uh, we want to look at, and this question confronts the the major religions is that Elohim's son has come from him. So one of the most salient questions that confronts the major religions of this world is that Elohim's 
has a son. Now, one of the greatest questions that could be raised is, did Yah have a son? Either he did or he didn't. Now, such a question as to whether he had a son borderlines on whether or not Yeshua assisted him in both the creation of the human family and also the salvation of mankind. If Yah had a son, it is well worth noting what it is that the son's involvement has to do with both the plan of creation and the plan of, of redemption. Moreover, if he didn't have a son, how would this affect both the creation and the salvation of Adam's offspring? If Yah did, if Yah did have a son, why aren't the three major religions of the world seeing him as being the son of Yah? Why don't they see this? You got three major religions. All three, all three religions: the Orthodox Jews, the Christian churches, and the Muslims. They all have rejected Yah's son. Let us now probe into the polemics as to why and how these religions have rejected Yah's son. Okay, so this is our focus. We want to see how three major religions that claim Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Yeshua, how they have rejected him as being the son of Elohim. Because what we recognize is that when you deal with Orthodox Judaism, they have the Torah as their, their, their book. And then when you deal with Christianity, we have the Bible. And then when you deal with Islam, they have the Quran. So when you look at these religions, the Hebrew religion or the Jewish religion, they came up first then Christianity, and then the Muslims. Now, how's all of these who accept Abraham, and they also accept Yeshua, how is it that they reject Yeshua as being the son of Elohim? Okay, this is what we want to look at. However, before we get into the polemics of these three religions, let us examine what Yeshua said about Peter's confession as he confessed him as being the son of the Most High. So uh, as we look at that, we want to look at Peter's confession. And in your Bibles, I want you to turn with me in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, we want to look at the 16th chapter. And I want to look at a couple of verses there. Matthew 16, and the first verse that we want to look at is Matthew 16, verse 13. And it says, when Yeshua came into the coast of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? You know, and if you read, uh, if you read what they had to say about him, then he wanted to know what people were saying, but he also wanted to know what his disciples were saying about him as well. Okay, so between the 13th verse and the 15th verse, uh, he asked another question. He says, 
he, he asked this question in verse 15. He said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? Okay. But whom say ye that I am? And if you notice here, uh, when he was asking his disciples, is, and the Bible says, and Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Messiah, the son of the living Elohim. Okay. So he said, You are the Messiah, the son of the, uh, uh, of, of, of the living Elohim. In other words, he pointed out that you are the son of Yah. And notice the reply that Yeshua gives concerning Peter's confession. He said, and Yeshua says in verse 17, and answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Okay, so he is saying to Peter, what you have said as concerning me being the son of the Father, it, it, it wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood. He said, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. So when, she, when, she, so when Yeshua asked his disciples, of course, and whom do men say that I, the son of man, am, they said, some said that thou art John the Baptist, some say Elias, and others, Jeremiah's, and one or one of the prophets. Then he asked them, but whom say ye that I am? And out of all of his disciples, the only one that spoke up was Simon Peter, who declared and said, Thou art the Messiah, the son of the living Elohim. He, Peter, was confessing that Yeshua was, in actuality, was the son of Yah. Yeshua replied by saying to him, Blessed art thou, Simon, by Jonah, in other words, the son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, if his Father had revealed that his son, Yeshua, was his son, then we have to take it at face value. As the Father said it, we cannot come and theorize it or spiritualize it. We must accept it what the Father said. Now, if the father said he was his son and the world said he's not his son, do you think that the father is going to come out and say, well, since the world don't see Yeshua as my son, then I'm going to agree with them? No. We'll have to agree with the father because the father is the only one that's going, where it's going to last in the end. So if the father said he sent his son, we have to believe that he sent his son because if he didn't send his son after telling us he sent his son, then he would not be telling us truth. But the Bible teaches that Elohim cannot give a falsehood. So he does not give us anything contrary to what he is saying. If he said he is a son, he said, this is my son. He was with me in glory. So when we probe into the Orthodox Jews and the other Jewish believers, they do not accept Yeshua as being Yah's son. So when we go back to the Judaism or the Orthodox Jews, they don't believe that Yeshua is the son. Why is this? There are some Jews who accept Yeshua, but not all of them see him as Yah's son. Just like there's many Messianic uh, who actually believe that Yeshua is the son of Elohim, but some of them uh, do not all believe that he's the son of Elohim. So when we look at Orthodox Judaism, we have to understand what they believe. 
Now, some see him as a son being a part of a trinity, okay? There are some Jews who actually see and believe in the trinity as well. Now, some see him as a son in the sense of human flesh, but not as a son, as a divine son of Elohim. They don't see that. But for the most part, Jews don't perceive of, of Yah as having a son, nor is Yah of a human nature. They said no human being can be a son of Elohim. For a Jew to worship Yeshua would be to them to worship a man. They do not see him as Elohim in the flesh. They don't, they don't see that. They see him purely as flesh. For as many of them to see Yeshua as Elohim and not just as flesh, they would have to go beyond their traditions and their rabbinical teachings, which aren't substantiated by the Torah. They, 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 in many instances, only accept the first five books of the Torah, but they claim that they cannot substantiate Yeshua in the first five books of the Torah to be the son of Elohim. And so they don't see him as the son of Elohim. And today they voice that because they say it is a form of, of idolatry. Idolatry is to have false worship. The commandment says, thou should not worship anything in the heavens above or in the sea and anything under the sea. And they feel that if man who has come out of the earth is claiming to be Elohim, they cannot accept that. So when you did a Judaism, they do not accept him as being the son of Elohim. When we deal with Islam, now I'm going to deal with Christianity last because that's a lot more complex than Judaism and uh, Islam. So when we deal with Islam and its relationship to Yeshua being the son of Yah, they do not see it as such. In the teachings of Islam, Muslims do not believe that Yeshua is Yah's son, nor do they believe that he is Yah. So they don't believe he's the son of Elohim, and neither do they believe that he is Yah himself. They don't believe that he was crucified on the cross. They believe he was taken to heaven and will return. They look for his return, but they say that he, he was never crucified on the cross. And when he returns, all will accept Islam. They don't believe that Yah or Allah, as they call him, can have children. They don't believe Elohim can have children. They believe that Mary, the mother of Yeshua, gave birth to him and that Allah was the father of her child because he was the one that spoke the word into her womb to produce the child. But they don't believe that the child came from Allah, they believe simply that he spoke the word and she had the child, and he and from there he called him his son. But Elohim cannot have a son. They don't not they don't they do not see Elohim have, having a son. 
In Islam, they do not believe that there is a trinity. They don't believe in that. They believe in only one El or in only one Yah, and they practice true monotheism. Monotheism is the belief in one Elohim. And so since the church teach three Elohims in a trinity, they do not believe that. They do not believe that Yeshua had a mother. I mean, they do not believe that Elohim had a mother. They, they say God has no mother. So as the church, many of the churches was teaching, especially from Catholicism, that Elohim mother was Mary. They say that Elohim existed before Mary. So how could Mary be the mother of Elohim even, even uh, in this world? And so they deny a trinity. They also deny that Elohim can have children, and they also deny that Yeshua was divine. So in the teachings of Muhammad, as found written in the Quran, it refutes that Jesus is Yah's son. Islam do not accept him as Yah's son, only the son of, uh, of Mary. So what we have here basically is that Islam and Judaism rejects Yeshua as the son of Elohim. Okay, now let us now turn to Christianity. When we consider the son of Yah in Christianity, it may be somewhat more complex than Judaism and Mohammedism in the sense that Judaism and Mohammedism is outright upfront that they do not accept him as the son of Elohim. But in these religious organizations, it is rather clear from their teachings that they do not believe in the teachings of the Talmud and the, or the Quran that Yeshua is the son of Yah. So they tell you up front that he's not his son. They don't play around with it. However, in Christianity, there are some theological speculations as to whether Yeshua was or was not the son of Yah. In Christianity, we have the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants churches both claiming that Yeshua is a part of a trinity. While it is true that some Protestant churches do not teach concerning a trinarian doctrine, however, for the most part, Christendom believes in a trinity. To a large extent, it is the Catholic Church which gave to Christendom the teachings of a trinity. While the Protestant churches which have accepted the doctrine, the doctrinal teachings of a trinity, they were the pioneers, the, the Roman Catholic Church was the pioneers of it. So the question we have on the table when it comes to both Catholicism and Protestantism is, does a trinity actually validate that Yeshua is the son of Yah? Without going into a lengthy 
exposition, let us see how it is that a trinity in actuality deny that Yeshua is the son of the Most High Elohim. And we will do this by what I refer to as one of the most elementary ways of doing so, which is to explore the meaning of a trinity and then to see how such a, a meaning, how such a meaning aligns itself with that of being a son of Yah. Let us first define what a trinity is. So for this part of our study, we refer to this as the three Elohims, the three Elohims theory, and we call it the Trinarian definition. So let us look at the uh, Trinitarian definition. The Trinitarian definition points out this. When we explore the Trinity in one of its most simplistic definitions, it would be with two explanations. Let us look at these two explanations. So when we talk about a Trinity, they are saying it is the union of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in one head, in one Godhead. So I want you to get that clear now. When they talk about a Trinity, they're talking about the union of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in one Godhead. So I want you to see that. They're saying you got the Father God, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God in one Godhead. Okay, that's what the Trinity is. But the second explanation about a Trinity is, is that it's a threefold personality of one supreme being. In other words, they're saying that you got three individuals, but they all are of a supreme being, or they all three individuals are Elohim. All three of them are Elohim. So let us sum up these two explanations and then apply them to Yeshua, the son of Elohim. So let us look at these two definitions that we have discovered. It's a union of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in one Godhead. And the other explanation is, is three personalities of one supreme being. So we want to look at that. When we deal with these two explanations of a trinity, we can do so by explaining them succinctly as the following. A trinity is three gods in one or one God in three. A trinity is three gods in one person or one God in three persons. That's what it's saying. Now, let us deal with some polemics as to why a trinity negates Yeshua from being the son of Yah. When we speak about having three gods in one person, the implication is that there is only one being, and he is composed of three individual gods, which Trinarians refer to as God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Holy Ghost. Moreover, on the other hand, there is one God in three individual persons. With these definitions, the first polemic that we'll concern ourselves with is why do the Trinarian view present two aspects? That, that in the Sefferson question. Isn't there a considerable difference between having three gods in one person and having one God in three persons? Isn't there a difference? How, how, how are you giving us two definitions? One is that three persons and one God, and the other is, is that you got three persons with God in all three of them. Therefore, we must see the contradictions of these two definitions. So just by these conf conflicting definitions, there is a discrepancy in whether we are talking about one God or three. So what are we talking about? Are we talking about one God or three? The Trinity, the, the Trinity does not define that. They merely take two stands on two different things which are opposing one another. Therefore, if the definition of a trinity is not clear, then how would we expect that we would get a clear understanding as to whether or not Yah having a son would be clear? If your definition is clear, then certainly you're dealing with the son of Elohim. That wouldn't be clear either. Yah having a son would be clear if they had a clear definition, but there is no clear definition. Now let us take these explanations and see how they align themselves with Yeshua being the son of the father. We will deal with the three gods concept first, and then we'll deal with the one God concept as they relate to Yeshua's being Yah's son. So the three gods in one aspect, let's look at that, three gods in one aspect. If we go along with the three gods in one aspect of the Trinity, then there are at least three points of contention. The first point of contention is that if there are three gods in one person, this would mean that all three of them would be equal in time, in rank and status, if they all existed at one time. If one person possessed three gods, then how would the three of them who have always existed determine which of the three should be the son? How did they determine it? You got the Father, and you got the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if they have all existed from the days of eternity, how did they determine who was going to be the son? How was that determined? How would such a selection be made as to who the son would be if they all were in existence simultaneously from eternity? Contention two would be that in all things living, there must be the spirit of life. Now, if we have three gods in one person, does this mean that they all operate together in one body? And when Yeshua came to this world, were all three in the same body or no? So when he came, if you say there was just one 
one person with three, three, three in that person. So when they came to this world, did the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, were they all together in this life? That would have to be decided. Now, the third contention would be that the Scriptures call the Father, according to Daniel 7, 9, and 13, it calls the Father the Ancient of Days. But his Son is never referred to as the Ancient of Days, yet the Trinity states all three of them existed together in one person ever since God existed. So if that is, that is true, it's a lot of questions on that. Now let us look at the other aspect, the one God in three aspects, okay? In this aspect, we'll find some similarity in the contentions as we did in the three gods in one aspect. In the one God in, in three persons aspect, we have three gods referred to as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Here we have three persons independent and distinct from one another. It's not like they are all together. They are different. And again, in a trinity, each one of them are of the same age and is considered to be God or Elohim. If three gods have always been in existence who are separate and different from one another, how is it determined who is the father and who is the son? If they have all three always having been in existence and neither of them came from the other, then how do we determine sonship? How do we determine sonship? If you got the father, it already existed. The son has already always existed, and the Holy Spirit ha uh, has always existed. How do we determine which of them is a son, since they've all been in existence? Moreover, as we pointed out in the first aspect, if life is to exist, there must be the spirit of life, because we know that even when man was made, and only for him to have life, he had to have the spirit of Elohim breathe into him. So anything that has life must have the spirit of life, which is the spirit. Consequently, if this is true, this would mean that in order for all three of Elohims, all three gods or all three Elohims of the Trinity to have life, these must have a spirit. So we would have the spirit of Elohim, the spirit of, well, we would have the spirit of Elohim, the Father, and we would have the spirit of Elohim, the Son, and we would have the spirit of the Spirit, if we can look at, look at it as such, or we can say simply say that uh, the Spirit, either he's the Spirit of the Spirit or the Spirit. But what we're trying to point out, that in order for the Father to have life, the Son to have life, and the Spirit to have life, they have to have the Spirit. So if the Father has a Spirit, and the Son has a Spirit, and you have the Spirit, then 
if prior to Yeshua coming into this world to be incarnated in flesh, since they all three had a spirit, what would be the need of the Holy Spirit, which has no body but only a spirit? Why would they have needed the spirit to come into the world? Because uh, the Son has a spirit. The Father has a spirit. So what would what would be the need of the Holy Spirit? They already have a, a, a spirit. And if the Son is holy, then he has a Holy Spirit. And if the Father is holy, he has a Holy Spirit. So what would you need with a third spirit for? So the Trinity not only teaches about three gods or three Elohim, it teaches about three spirits. The Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son, and the Spirit of the Spirit. Moreover, if all three were in existence at all times from the days of eternity past, how then can one God say to another God that he was sending his Son? A biblical definition has to come forth. A son has to come forth from a parent. In order to have a son, you got to come forth from a parent. You cannot just say all three of them existed in eternity and all of a sudden one is a son. How, how could that be if, he is, if, if, if each of them are independent and different and distinct from one another and none of them came from one another? How on earth could that be a son? That defies the, the very definition of a son. The Bible should have been written and says that he was a he 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 was a, 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 a he co-reigned with the Father. Both of them should have been kings if they both had existed at the same time in the same space from all eternity. It should not be a son. They should both be fathers if if they're such. But how could they be fathers if they have no sons? You cannot have a father without a son. There is no such thing as a son without a father and no such thing as a father without a son. Okay, now, let's, let's, so, so we can see that Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, they all, de they, they all deny that he's the son of Elohim. They all deny. The Trinity is nothing but um, some type of theological speculation about Elohim. None of that is found in the scriptures. None of that is found in the scriptures. Okay, now let us go to 1 John. Let us go to 1 John chapter 2. That's the first uh, epistle of John, and we want to go to chapter 2. I want to look at verses 18 and 22. That's 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. It says this, Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard, that anti-Messiah shall come, even now are there many anti-Messiahs or anti-Christes, whereby we know that it is the last time. Okay, he's talking about an anti-Messiah uh, anti or anti-Christ, okay? Now, he said in the last time, in the last days, he said that the anti-Christ would come. Now, in the same uh, second chapter of John, we want to look at verse 22. Okay, verse 22 says, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Yeshua is the Messiah? He said, he said he's a liar that's, 
that denieth that Yeshua is the Messiah or the Christ. He is an antichrist that denieth that the Father and the Son. So he said, if you deny the Father and the Son, you are antichrist. That's what you are, an antichrist. You're, you're against the Messiah. That's what you are. Now, in the same 1 John chapter 4, and we look at verse 3, it says this, John, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 3 says, And every spirit that confesseth not that Yeshua is the Christ, let me read that again, and every spirit that confesseth not that Yeshua the Messiah is come in the flesh is not of Elohim. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. Okay. So he is saying here in verse 3 is that the Antichrist is the one that is going by the Spirit, and he confess not. So when you talk about confess, uh, confession is to say the same thing, okay? In other words, what you think and what you speak are the same. So when you confess something, then you're confessing the same thing. But here the Bible said, if you confess not that Yeshua is Christ, is come in the flesh is not of Elohim. So he said, if you don't confess that Elohim actually sent his son in the flesh, you are antichrist. You're against the father and you're against the son. And, and he goes on to say, and this is that spirit of the antichrist. So the spirit of the antichrist is to deny that the father has a son or that the son has a father. He said, you deny that. Okay. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. So we have the spirit of the Antichrist in this world. Okay. Now the next text that we want to use here is is Second John verse seven. Second John verse seven says this. It says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Yeshua the Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Okay. So here in these verses, they speak concerning the antichrist or the anti-Messiah. One of the things that is pointed out about the anti-Messiah is that he would, uh, that he would, be manifested in the flesh. But if you deny that the anti-Messiah would be manifest in the flesh, you are anti-Christ. Now, even Yeshua, our Messiah, when he was here on this earth with his disciples, for there he said in Matthew 24, 24, for there shall arise False messiahs, okay? So what is a false messiah? A false messiah is an antichrist, one who is against the father and the son. 
Moreover, we are told from the passages, from these passages, that the anti-Messiah would deny the Father and the Son. The anti-Messiah would not only confess that Yeshua, the Messiah, is come in the flesh, but he would deny the Father and the Son. So those who deny the incarnation of Yeshua have the spirit of the anti-Messiah of claiming that he did not send Elohim in the flesh. Father in heaven, as we have looked at the three major religions that have denied your son, we ask, O heavenly Father, that we may be part of the true nature of Elohim. That is, he took on flesh. He was still the son of Elohim. But the, anti, but the Antichrist, the anti-Messiah, says he was not. Help us to believe the scriptures rather than the teachings of men, that we may walk in the true nature of Elohim. Pray this prayer in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, and for his dear sake we do pray. Amen, amen. and amen. Amen. Boy, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, so anyone who denies the Father, well, denies the Son, basically, mm -hmm. is the Antichrist. Right. And um, I so Islam do not believe that Yah Yahusha was the Messiah. They believe that he basically was born here and went back to heaven, and he wasn't crucified. Yeah, they don't believe he was crucified, but they did believe that he went back to heaven and he will return. But they don't believe he was crucified. No. Huh. See, for them to believe that he was crucified, they would have to accept the atonement, which they do not accept. Mm -hmm. They say, you know, we don't need no Jesus to die for us. They, they in Islam, what they believe, if you do anything wrong, mm -hmm. well, you do a good deed, and that would cover, cover it for you, and that's all you need to do. You see, every good deed that you do will wipe out the bad deeds that you did. That's their belief. They don't need no atonement. Uh -huh. So if they confess the crucifixion, they're saying they believe in atonement. They, no, they say he wasn't crucified. Mm. Yeah, it'd be interesting to read their literature and also the beliefs about the Islam belief. And also you were saying that in Scripture, the son is never referred to as the Ancient of Days, just the father. Just father. You look in the book of Daniel, when he says Ancient of Days, mm -hmm. uh, let's let's turn to it. When you, when you deal with Daniel 7, uh, here's what it says. Okay. Okay, here here in Daniel 7, the Bible says, in, in verse 9, now notice what it says. It said, I beheld till the thrones was cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like as pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame and his wills as a burning fire. Now, let's talk about the ancient days of the Father. But notice in the same verse it says, in, in verse 13, notice what it said. It said, Then I saw in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Now, it's talking about the Son of Man who came to the Ancient of Days. So if the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days, he must have been his son, so he definitely couldn't have been the ancient of days 
because they are two separate persons. Yeah. So when the son came, he was coming to the father who had existed before him. Mm. Now, now, does uh, the father have more power than the son? Uh, that's a good question, but uh, the way we look at it uh, is, is simply this, mm-hmm. is that uh, all of the uh, Elohim has power, but, all, uh, El- but Elohim has all power. He's almighty, mm-hmm. uh, but he said he's put all power into his son's hand. Okay, now, uh, are we talking about uh, power as strength, or are we talking about you got two words for power? You got one power word in Greek they call dunamis, mm-hmm. which means your ability, your strength. And then you got exousia. Exousia means power in the sense of authority, okay? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you may not have the strength, but you do have the authority, Okay. All right. Now, let us take like in a city, if you are a builder or a contractor, when you come into that city to build, it's not that you have the strength. It's not that you just have the strength to build something, Mm -hmm. but you have to have the authority. How do you get the authority? You have to go to the city officials and say, I want to build a house in this community. Can I have the authority? Mm -hmm. Okay, they give you a, a written authority that you can build. So Yeshua had, he had strength, but he also had the authority. So when you say, does he have the same strength of the father? Well, the father said, I put all things into my son's hand. Mm -hmm. So he actually had the authority that his father had. But if you're talking about the strength in itself, I don't know if the Bible defines that they would have the same strength, but we know that they had the same authority. Okay. Um, now you mentioned that uh, the first religion to come about was Hebrew, then Christianity, then Islam. Mm-hmm. See, uh, first you had you know, in, in Judaism, you know, mm-hmm. that came from the son of Judah, mm-hmm. which is basically you, you, you know, it actually came. The Hebraic religion actually came down from Abraham. He had Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob had twelve sons and one named Judah. Mm-hmm. But it's the Israelite religion because. Jacob was changed to Israel. So Israel became uh, uh, the religion. But in actuality, we know that Elohim never gave a religion. But I'm speaking uh, to try to let folk understand that the three major religions, even though Elohim gave a covenant, Mm -hmm. but the three major religions was was, uh, uh, Orthodox Judaism, which was from Abraham. And it goes. Israel, and Israel was the 12 tribes, but it boiled down to the north tribe, which was uh, the 10 tribes of Israel, and Judah uh, had two tribes, and they were divided, but in the end of time, the house of Judah and the house of uh, Israel will come back together, but right now they're split. Okay. So when we, so when we look at uh, uh, Judaism, it it, it 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 was the first great religion, and they accepted uh, Abraham, they accepted Yeshua mm-hmm. uh, 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 as well, because many of the Messianics, they still accepted. And then after Judaism came Christianity, because the people began now not to follow just Jacob or mm-hmm. Israel, they now follow Yeshua, 
And when they do that, they become messianics or, uh, or, or, or those who follow Yeshua. But those who follow Yeshua still embrace uh, the Israelite uh, teachings. They still embrace that. Okay. But through Yeshua, and then after Yeshua had come and gone back to heaven, mm-hmm. then Islam came on the scenes. And when uh, the prophet Muhammad came out of the Balkan Balkan uh, Peninsula, then when they came up out of there, the you know the Bible describes them. I think in Revelation nine. Mm-hmm. But some said that's not Islam, but it, it certainly describes Islam. And they began to then to take over. And one of the ways they were able to take over because the Eastern Church and the Western Church they were fighting, and they was fighting over the Christological controversies of the uh, of the Council of Trent, or not the Council of Trent, but the Council of Nicaea, which went on many years. They were saying that was Yeshua fully God or was he fully man? And while he was having the Christological controversies of who Yeshua was in his true nature, Islam said, hey, he, uh, God has no flesh. They said he's only one God. Monothe- monotheism is only one God, and that's who he was. He had no son. God has no mother, mm. and he has no son. And Mary was not the mother of God, mm-hmm. but God was God all by himself without Mary. And so when the Catholic Church was doing all these teaching and they were coming out with monotheism, they were getting a whole lot of people. Why? Because the doctrine was so simple. It was not complicated with all this Christ- Christianity stuff. And so a lot of people followed Islam. And Islam is one of the greatest religions on earth today. Mm-hmm. And they were the last one that comes up. All right. And uh, we have a question from a listener. Mm-hmm. And the question is, what do you mean by saying Yahusha is Yah himself? Oh, uh, what, what we're saying when we say uh, he is Yah himself is, uh, let, me, let me just say, explain it in a very simplistic way. Let's turn to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we want to look at chapter 1, and we want to look at verse uh, number, let me see, uh, we'll look at verse 11. Well, actually 11 and 12 we could look at. Okay, it says, And Elohim said, Let the earth bring forth grass, and let the earth uh, yield and see, and the fruit of the tree yield and fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind, and Elohim saw that it was good. Now, what I'm pointing out here is a law, is a law in both the world of plants, okay, that in order for you to have a plant of any kind, whether it, whether it be an uh, apple or a zucchini, you have to have the seed from that plant to reproduce after its kind. Okay, now, with that same principle in mind, let us stays right here in the book of Genesis, the first chapter. And this time we want to read verse 26. And the Bible says, and the Bible says, Elohim said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, just that first part. He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, so when he made made man after his image and his likeness, then that means that in order for man to reproduce and to look like Elohim, he had to have a seed, and Adam's seed was in himself, 
And then when he separated the woman from the man and he put his seed within the woman, then they would reproduce children after Elohim. Why was that? Because they were dealing with a divine principle, and the divine principle is that uh, everything reproduces after its kind. So if Elohim's uh, son came from him, he is reproducing after his kind. So if his kind was divine, then the son would be divine. If after his kind he was Elohim, then that means his son is also Elohim. So that would mean that when he came forth from Elohim, that if he came forth from Elohim, then he would be Elohim. His father would be Father Elohim, and he would be the son of Elohim, but yet he would still be Elohim. This is why when he came to earth and he told the uh, Sanhedrin and the Sadducees and the Jews who was trying him that he was the son of Elohim, they are saying, hey, you are saying you are actually not his son in the flesh, but you are actually saying you are his son as being a part of Elohim. And they say you are blaspheming because no human can be a part of Elohim. But what he was trying to tell them before he became flesh, he was the son of Elohim because he came from Elohim. And so that's what I mean when he says, when I say that Yah was not only the son of Yah, but he was Yah. Okay. Well, with that, we will head into our next segment. Up next is Let's Talk About That. Uh, so one of the things I want to talk about and ask some questions to the pastor about this week, and this probably is going to be a two-part series. Um, we're going to deal with a part of it this week and part of it next week. It's about the renewed covenant. Um, we know that Yah established a covenant. And I believe he several covenants and we know that Israel neglected. And that's why, you know, our ancestors went into bondage. That's why the transatlantic trade trade happened. And so with that, we know that coming is a renewed covenant. Has it come yet? Has it not? And I want to look at two verses, one that's written by Jeremiah and one that's written by Paul, basically saying the same thing about the renewed covenant. So if you have your Bibles, if you can turn with me to Jeremiah, uh, the 31st chapter, and we're going to read verses 31 through 34. Again, that's Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, uh, reading verse 31 through 34 should be on your screen. Behold, the days come, saith the Yahuwah, Elohim, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Yasharel and with the house of Yehuda, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke break, although I was a husband unto them, says Elohim. But this shall be a covenant that I will make with the house of Yasharel. After those days, saith Elohim, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their Elohim and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Elohim, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Elohim, for I will forgive them 
for for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, if you have your Bibles, if you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter eight, and we're going to read from eight till 13. And it reads for finding fault with them. He saith, behold, the days come, saith the Elohim, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Yasharel and with the house of Yehuda. Not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith Elohim. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Elohim, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a Elohim, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No, Elohim, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to, the, to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant he hath made the first old, now that which decayeth and waxes old is ready to vanish away. So, Pastor, one of the things I wanted to, it's, it seems like almost Paul almost said verbatim what Jeremiah said. And I just was wondering, did he quote what Jeremiah has said? Or was it something that Yah possibly impressed on his heart to say that again, that Maybe Yah impressed on Jeremiah uh, years ago. Uh, well, the only thing about uh, the prophets, when you read the prophets, uh, mm -hmm. the prophets are talking about the uh, the covenant that he made with Israel, okay? Mm -hmm. And when he made, made the covenant with Israel, where did that covenant come from? It came from the Torah. See, the Torah was the first five books of Moses. This is why the Orthodox Jews say, we don't need anything but the Torah. Now, why why are they saying that? Well, we have to understand the Jewish, the Jewish mind. See, the Jewish mind felt that if Moses went up on Mount Sinai, and God gave him a covenant, then that covenant that he he gave was from the voice of Elohim. Mm -hmm. And then when he was about to write the covenant, uh, I mean, speak the covenant, they said. You know, uh, we don't want to listen to your voice, Elohim, because they they were so fearful of of, of 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 the loud sound and vocalization of Elohim. They said we don't want you to speak to us. So he Moses went and told Elohim, and Elohim said, "Okay, well, I spoke to Ten Commandments, but the things that I speak unto you, I want you to write." Mm -hmm. And so instead of speaking it to him, then he wrote it. Okay, and so when Moses wrote it. That became the covenant. So with, Jer with Jeremiah and the prophets like Isaiah and all of them, when they talk about the covenant, they're talking about what was given at Sinai, okay? So when they talk about what was given at Sinai, so when Paul was writing, Paul was writing exactly what Jeremiah had prophesied because Jeremiah had prophesied from the Torah. Mm -hmm. And the Torah was what actually Elohim actually spoke. So when Jeremiah was prophesying, what was happening is that the Spirit 
was letting him know that when they had the first covenant, what was the first covenant that Jeremiah was talking about? He mm -hmm. was talking about the covenant that they had given at Sinai, and that was a covenant that they had broken. Okay. So he said, since you broke it, uh, I'm going to give you a new covenant. Okay, now, even though uh, in this part of the passage in Hebrews that Paul reingurgitates what uh, Jeremiah says, mm -hmm. he also explains a lot more in uh, about the covenant, but, but we're not going to go into that. But but some of the things that he does say is that the covenant, the first covenant that he gave, it was it was uh, as it were uh, endorsed with the blood of animals. He said, but the second covenant, uh, which would be the same covenant, mm -hmm. it would be with the blood of Yeshua. And that that made the difference okay. because when he gave them the covenant at Sinai, what did they say? They said, Elohim, all you said, we won't do. And when Moses was up in the mount, before he could uh, be up there for the length of time that he was with Yahweh, Aaron had built a golden calf, and they danced around the golden calf. So when Moses came down, he broke the tables of stones and took that golden image and ground it in the powder and put it in the water, and he told them to drink it. He said, you you know, all this stuff y'all doing, y'all going against the commandment of, of idolatry worshiping the, the apis bull that you worship down in Memphis, Egypt. He said, this is, this, this should not be. So even though they said, all you said we would do, they were still dancing around and having the false gods that they were still subject to. And so Jeremiah is saying that when you made that first covenant, you didn't live up to it. And that first covenant was not ratified with the blood of Yeshua, but the blood of goats. And the blood of goats was going to represent the blood of the new covenant, which was Yeshua, because when he was with his disciples, he told his disciples before he was crucified, he said, this grape juice, the fruit of the vine, this is my blood in the New Testament or the new covenant. See, testament and covenant mean the same thing. In Greek, it is testament. In Hebrew, it is the covenant. Mm -hmm. So when he made the new covenant, it was going to be ratified or endorsed with his blood. And then he says that the Holy Spirit would take and put it laws in his statutes in his covenant within their hearts. But see, at Sinai, they did not experience that. Okay. But with the new covenant, they would experience two things, that the blood or the life of Yeshua, because Elohim said, if you sin, what's going to happen? You're going to have to die. But I made a covenant with you. And what is the covenant? When they sacrificed the animal, they had to slice that animal in half, and they had to walk between the blood of it. They had to walk in the blood. Because the blood was signifying that whenever you sin, the life of someone has to be taken. In the Old Testament, the life that was taken was the life of the animals and all of that blood. But when Yeshua came, they did away with the animals, and he became the life that was given for the sins of the people. So when his life was given for the sins, then they could take his perfect life to their life, who was sinners, and to be able to, uh, as it were, have forgiveness of sin. But then, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they would continue to walk in the truthfulness of the covenant. And there was a new covenant in his blood and also his Holy Spirit helping them to walk in that covenant after accepting Yeshua for their sins. Okay, so since uh, the, uh, the new covenant... The renewed covenant is when Yahushua died for our sins. 
with his blood and it took away the animal sacrifice. So yeah, the, mm-hmm. yeah, the covenant was the same, but the means of ratifying the covenant or, or solidifying the covenant was the blood. Same covenant, uh-huh. but now they're going to keep it through the blood of Yeshua, not the blood of animals. So it's still the old covenant, mm-hmm. but it's just the way you go about um, uh, atoning for your sins was different. Mm-hmm. See, like the Orthodox, like I was saying, the Orthodox Judaism, they, they don't... They don't even believe in no cross, you know, mm-hmm. so they, they'll tell you up front, you know, they look at Christians and say, y'all walking with your head down and talking about you got to be humble. They say, but we as Jews, we walk upright. We got confidence in ourselves that we don't need nobody atone for us and we can, we can, we can do that for ourselves. Mm. But the new covenant says, Hey, you know, you come through the blood of Yeshua, not your own sins. So. Are we now under a renewed covenant or are we still under the old covenant? And is no, there a renewed covenant to come? No, we're under the new covenant now. Uh, when Yeshua died and expired on the cross, uh-huh. that gave the blood for the new covenant. It is through him that we can uh, validate the, the new covenant. Okay, so so now we're under the new one. Mm-hmm. Now... With so okay, so now when Yah later on supposedly is supposed to uh, reconcile with Israel as well as Judah, is there going to be another covenant there, or are, is it basically the covenant that we're under is already here? Is just a part of of Israel coming back, Israel and Judah coming back. And accepting Yah as uh, the one and only Elohim. Well, I, I think they they uh, well many of them they they are even though they haven't come back together mm-hmm. as Judah and Israel because uh, remember it's under the reign of uh, Rehoboam, which was the son of Solomon, that the kingdom was uh, separated. Okay, Jeroboam he took the northern kingdom, and Rehoboam had the had the southern kingdom. Mm-hmm. And with those with with those particular kingdoms of uh, of uh, I think it was uh, the southern kingdom was uh, Judah and Benjamin, and uh, the other northern kingdom was the other ten tribes. So Jeroboam, Jeroboam, he took ten, and uh, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, took took two kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Not but now when Yeshua died, uh, when he died. Uh, house of Judah and the house of uh, Israel is still divided. So uh, we're going to still believe in Yeshua and still accept him for the, for the covenant. Mm-hmm. But when, when, when Israel accept him and also Israel with Judah accept him and Israel both accept him, accept him uh, they won't be coming together to get a new covenant. Mm-hmm. The new covenant is already there. They come together to share the new covenant. They both will have it, but they both, you know, I think in the last days, I think uh, I think it's in the uh, Romans, uh, the eighth chapter, when it talks about uh, the, uh, the 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 olive tree, the olive tree, uh, they're gonna <clears throat> Israel and Judah gonna come back together. 
mm-hmm. as a people, but the covenant is already established. It'll be just that they'll be together on the covenant rather than uh, separated on the covenant. So uh, when, when it states in uh, Jeremiah 31 and one of the verses 33 to 34, mm. and it says that, and not according to the covenant that I cut with the fathers in the day that I took them by the hand, bring them out of the land of Mitzrayim, which my covenant they broke, Although I was a husband to them, says he who am, but this shall be the covenant that I will cut with the house of Yasharel after those days, says Yahuwah. I will put my Torah in their heart, in their parts and write it in their hearts. So I'm wondering, has this already been done or is something to come? And would this be a new covenant that he's going to do or is still refer is are he still referring to the old one that we're under now well it's it's the same covenant but but you have to think in term even though it's the same covenant it's Mm -hmm. the application of the of the covenant okay okay now uh if you read further in the book of hebrews it it would also say uh it would say the same it it would say the same thing Mm -hmm. about him writing writing it upon upon the hearts Mm -hmm. It's a future covenant for those who uh, will be coming upon life's uh, stage. It's, it's future for them, but to us, uh, it is taking place right now that he's writing upon our hearts. Just like the Apostle Paul has a scripture that says that we are living epistles known and read of all men. In other words, the epistle is something that you write. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, Paul is saying that he's writing this covenant on our hearts through the person of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So it is something that has already taken place, but for some people who may not have a knowledge of it, then it is something future that will will come about. But for his people who know that they are Israel and they are followers of, uh, uh, of the Messiah, then it is up to them that when the Holy Spirit moves upon them with the covenant, that they come back to his covenant uh-huh. And then once they restore back to his covenant, then he's going to also not only restore us back to the covenant, but he's going to restore Israel and Judah back to one another. Okay. And that's what we're looking for is the reuniting of the tribe of Judah but uh, uh, with Israel. But what we see now in the Holy Land is, is a few questions. There are some people drifting over to the Holy Land, and many are going over there. Mm-hmm. Some are being rejected and and some are being accepted, but mostly what we see in certain ethnicities, they are being accepted and other ethnicities that may not be according to their ethnicity, they are not allowed to come into the country. Mm-hmm. But then the other question is, is that truly the place over there by the welling wall? Is that truly the place of uh, of where they're going to be united at? Is that yeah. really the the area that he's talking about? And a lot of scholars are saying that's not really the place. So yeah. what we're looking at is it is something in the future for the covenant, mm-hmm. but it is going on right now. While we are talking, it, it, it's taking place. We're seeing groups come up recognizing their heritage yeah. And that they are the ones who are part of the true covenant. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. Uh, me personally, I don't believe that's the place because when I read in scripture, um, it, it, it states 
several times and I have to I would have to dig and look it up again, but that that area will be desolate until Yah decides to return his, you know, Judah and Israel back there. So if that land is desolate, that means no one's there. And then mm-hmm. I, I can't to me, I think the first reason he kicked us out because we were serving other Elohims, our ancestors, and we were desecrating it. So it must have been a holy ground that was people was on for them for him to even have kicked them out. And also, I kind of wonder before he took uh, the Garden of Eden back to heaven. I just wonder was that area where the Garden of Eden was actually at? Because if it uh, it was, I would think that land is holy. And if you notice where people consider the holy land now. Uh, it's a lot of vile, disgusting things that's going over there. And you mm-hmm. telling me this is a holy land with everything that's going on, wars, killing, uh, all this stuff with homosexuality and everything else, and you saying that this is a holy land? Mm. I can't believe that's, that that would be the place. Well, that's what the scholars are saying, that they don't believe that that's the place, even though for years that they have uh, said it was, but when you look at the geography and the study of the landscape, they said, some scholars are saying, no, that's not the place. And then just as you said, you know, even the land is holy. And one of the things that they would ex- expel from the land was because they were doing things unholy. Mm-hmm. Just like when Adam did things was unholy, he would have contaminated the Garden of Eden. So Elohim put him out. Yeah. Because whenever you contaminate yourself, you'll contaminate the land. Okay, so the thing about it is, is that uh, all down through the ages, Elohim has given his people laws, uh-huh. and they, those laws that he uh, he has given were were the laws to deal not only with them, but also with the land. When Adam sinned, he affected the land, and when we sinned, we affected the land because he gave agricultural laws as well as. Uh, laws for us. And what were some of the agriculture laws? Well, you can you can read in uh, Leviticus 25. Uh, well, let me just read a, a portion here, uh, you know, concerning your question. It said here in uh, Leviticus 25, uh, let me see. All right. There's a number of passages here. All right, let us lose verse 18. Leviticus 25, 18 says, Wherefore ye shall do my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and ye shall dwell in the land in safety, and the land shall yield her fruit, and ye shall eat your full and dwell therein in safety. And if ye shall say, What shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow nor gather our increase, then I will command my blessings upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. Now, what are you saying here? That every seventh year you had to let the land rest. So when you let the land rest, he says, you'll be asking me the question, what shall we eat? Mm -hmm. He said, well, just like when Israel was in the wilderness, he rained down twice as much manna on the sixth day, so they didn't have to gather on the what? On the Shabbat. They didn't have to gather it. 
the first five days of the week, they only got one helping. But on the sixth day, he said, no, I'm going to have you out here gathering manna on the seventh day. I'm going to give you twice as much. So you have two days. And when they did that, the manna that they had on the Sabbath didn't stink like it did if they saved it over on the first five days because he was preserving it. But now he is not only saying, let the land rest every seventh day, but he's saying, let the land rest every seventh year. Mm. And so they was following the agricultural laws. So by following the agricultural laws, the land would produce on the sixth year three times as much. So when they got ready for the uh, the uh, seventh year, they had enough for themselves, the strangers, and those who were their neighbors. They had enough. Okay. So because Elohim had given them laws, these laws were also in the covenant. And so when they broke these laws, uh, Elohim says that when the laws were broken, what, what did he say? He said, well, then when you are no longer on the land that I have given you, the lands that you, the, the laws that you have broken, he says, while you are not on the land, he said, the land's going to rest. Mm -hmm. The land is actually going to take a Sabbath of rest because you're not on it. So when we get to the land, the, the land rest, one of the reasons why the covenant uh, was broken is because they were actually working the land on the Sabbath day. Mm. Even on the seventh year, they was working the land. And he told them, when you come into the land, the seventh year, it has to rest. Okay. And he said, I'm taking you into Babylonian captivity because you are not resting when I tell you to rest. Mm. So when we look at down the line of the covenant, just as you say, that is probably not the Jerusalem area that he's talking about because the land that he's had, he's allowing that land to rest to yeah. keep the Sabbath. So when we go on, on to that land, it's going to be a holy land. It's going to yield the fruit. Yeah. So what they have set up may be a straw man. It's not it's not for real. Yeah. Even though historically they have claimed it, but the geography and the historians are proving that that is not the land because his land is going to rest like he wanted to. Yeah. And when he brings us out of captivity, he's going to bring us back to another holy land, a land that has been keeping the Sabbath because it has been desolated. Yeah. Well, before we close out, we do have a question that had come in from a listener. And it says, uh, could you please explain 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse what? 16. 16. Yes. Okay, let's see what it says. It said, and without controversy, it and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Elohim was manifest in flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Okay, I'm going to explain this uh, in sort of like sections. So we'll look at each section and see what is being articulated here by the Apostle Paul to Timothy when he wrote this first uh, epistle to Timothy. It said, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. In other words, there are two mysteries in the Bible, at least two basic 
Now, you have a lot of mysteries, but there are two basic mysteries in, in, in the Bible. One is the mystery of godliness, and another is the mystery of iniquity. Those are two mysteries. We don't really know how sin got in this world. There's no justification for it, but that is a mystery. And then there's a mystery of, uh, of godliness. You know, there's a mystery in that. And it says, and without great and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, must understand, a mystery to us may be different from what they perceived a mystery in the Bible. A mystery is not necessary something that you don't know. That's not a mystery. When you look up the uh, the Greek word for mystery, uh, it is saying something. It is something that that you know, but it but it is only given to certain people. Okay, it's not necessary something that you cannot know, but it's been given to certain people. Okay, that's what a mystery was. Just like in just like when you look at John writing on the Isle of Patmos. And he wrote in all those symbols in the book of Revelation. And people say, oh, that's a mystery. You can't understand it. They don't understand it, but John understood it because he could compare those symbols with other texts in the Bible, especially in the sanctuary. So it was something they didn't understand. But to those who in whom this mystery was given, they understood it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's something you can understand, but it was not given to everybody. So that's what Paul is saying. Uh, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He said, God or Elohim was manifested in the flesh. Okay. Now, when he said he was manifested in the flesh, it is saying that when his son came into this world, he put on flesh. In other words, it was not the God of flesh, but it was the God who put himself into flesh. Okay. So when the Apostle Paul says God was manifest in the flesh, he is saying that in the incarnation, that's what he came through the flesh. And then he was he said he justified in the spirit. Now, what does it mean to be justified in the spirit? Now, justification simply means that uh, what is transpiring is basically a something I want to say reasonable, but oftentimes justification is tied to uh, imputed righteousness, okay? And when you look at justification and sanctification, there's a little bit of difference, okay? Justification is uh, to give justice to something uh, that may be incorrect, just like we receive justification, all right? He was justified. Now, when he talks about this justification, it said he was justified in the spirit. Now, what was what was the justification in the spirit? All right. Well, I'm going to point out at least two examples. I think we quoted some in our studies today. Now, when you said justified in the spirit, now, what what are you talking about? Okay. Now, if I were to come to Elohim to be justified, He'll look at me and say, I'm a sinner. I, I could not be justified. But when I bring the blood, the lifeblood of Yeshua to him, he said, okay, you are justified. Why is that? 
because I now have taken the life of Yeshua, and Yeshua has taken my sins. But when we talk about justification of the Spirit, what are we talking about? Here's what we're talking about. The justification of the Spirit, first of all, the Spirit has to come from Elohim. That's His Spirit. And when His Spirit came down, where did it come? First of all, when Yeshua came here as a child, the Holy Spirit first came down upon Mary's womb to prepare the way for Yeshua to get into her womb. And once the seed was in her womb, then it was justified by the Spirit. Now, how does the Spirit justify something? The Spirit justifies something by coming upon it. That's what justification is. Now, when you say come upon it, it justifies it. What are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. That in order for something to be justified, it must be right with Elohim. It must be right. So Elohim saying the life of Yeshua was right with me. So anything that is right with me, I'm going to justify it through the spirit. And what does that mean? I'm going to send the spirit upon it. This is what the church is waiting for. When the church get right, he's going to send his spirit to justify us that we are right because I'm sending my spirit. If I, if you're not right, you're not going to get the spirit. So if you get the spirit, that means I've justified you. That's why I send my spirit. So now one of the times that he was justified was when he was baptized. And then another text that we talked about today was that when he was up in the mountain with his disciples in the transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, he heard a voice from, they heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now, what the Holy Spirit does, that when something is right, then the Holy Spirit moves upon it. If it's not right, the Spirit is not going to move. Just like when he sent out the dove during the time that, uh, no, after the flood, when he sent the dove out, the dove was a representation that Elohim had made the earth right again. So he endorsed it with his Holy Spirit. So he said he was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, because when the spirit comes upon something, it is saying it is all right. In other words, he's saying the life of Yeshua is okay. And then he said we were seen of angels, okay? Now, when he's talking about being seen of angels— then what what are we talking about? Well, there's two ways he can be seen of angels. Okay, now, when Yeshua went to the crucifixion, in the book of Luke it says that angels, an angel came down and picked up Yeshua because he was sweating blood, and he, he, he was not only just sweating water, but he was sweating blood, which meant, that he was in a spiritual anguish so great, so great was that spiritual anguish, that even the disciples could not comfort him. So the Elohim sent an angel down to, to pick him up, to comfort him, okay? But also, we know that when he was resurrected out of the tomb, the Bible says there was angels that gave to Mary and some of the other, uh, 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 Mary uh, Magdalene, and some of the other uh, women disciples, what did he do? He witnessed by angels. Angels witnessed this thing. Angels were able to validate, you know, his resurrection. So he was seen of angels. And then 
after he was seen of angels, he was preached unto the Gentiles. The Bible says that when he was resurrected out of the grave, that he resurrected some of the saints, and they went around into the cities, and they preached to the Gentiles. The Bible says this, okay? The Bible says that they preached to the Gentiles, and they were seen, uh, and, and, and even Yeshua, he was seen by the disciples, and not only seen by the angels, but the Bible says that he was seen by 500 other, other, other folk who witnessed, witnessed this, uh, according to the teachings of the Apostle Paul. So when they preached to the Gentiles the resurrection, then the Bible says, believed on in the world. So when they preached, they got a lot of believers after Yeshua was resurrected from the grave. They got a lot of believers in the world who believed on him. And then after Yeshua had spent 40 days with them on his earth, the Bible says the last part of 3rd uh, of, of, uh, 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 chapter of Timothy, the last part of verse 16 says he was received up in glory. So what do we have here? We have when Yeshua got ready to leave, according to the first chapter of the book of Acts, it says he told them to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay, he told them to wait for that. And then after 40 days, the Bible says he began to ascend up into glory. And the angels that was witnessing him, they said to the disciples who were looking up, seeing him go, he said, why do ye men stand here gazing? The same Yeshua that you see going up into heaven is coming in like manner as you have seen him go. So when he said he was being received up in glory, after those 40 days that he spent with his disciples, he was received up in glory. So that's the understanding of uh, 1 Timothy 3.16. If that did not answer your question, resend the question, and we'll deal with it again. Okay. Well, Pastor, can you take us to the throne as we get ready to close out this podcast for this week? Okay. Our loving Father, we thank you again for the inter for the intersection of for the inter, uh, for the interfacing of your word, Lord, with our worship this day. And we pray, Lord, that as you interface our worship with the power of the Holy Spirit, that we may have a discernment of the things that you would have us to do and to say in these last days. And we ask that the power of the Holy Spirit may continue to do for us that which is needed. And as we move toward the day of trumpets, O Heavenly Father, in the preparation for the day of atonement, that you would help us to get ready and to get our calendars together that we may do the things and be able to celebrate your days as you have given them. Pray and ask, Lord, for my host and his family, that the power of the Holy Spirit may continue to guide and direct him and to do for him that which is needed. Pray for each one of the listeners, O Heavenly Father, that thou would be with them be with their family and their loved ones. Pray and ask, Lord, that you would continue to guide and direct me and my family and my loved ones, that the power of the Holy Spirit may help us to be the witness in our families and to our neighbors and to our fellow brethren, O Heavenly Father. And as you try to draw Israel back together again, that when you come, Lord, the house of Israel and the house of Jacob, not the house of Jacob, but the house of Judah may be joined together. And as we look forward to the Holy Land, O Heavenly Father, in which many of your people will be gone. And as we look forward, O Heavenly Father, of keeping your covenant where we are, that we may be the children that can be able to give out the light 
that people may see the light, O Heavenly Father, and come to it. Help us to be the salt of the earth, O Heavenly Father, that we can be able to season those in whom we come, come, come in contact, that they too can be concentrated to the cause in which you have given. Now, Father, as we go throughout the rest of the Shabbat, give us a blessing. And when we come into a new week, we, may we be so renewed that we can do a better job in the things that we do. These and other blessings we ask in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. We, before we go, we want to remind you, Wednesday, September the 28th, we will be celebrating the Feast of Trumpets at 1 p.m. and again at 7 p.m. So join us Wednesday, the 28th of September, as we celebrate the Feast of Trumpets at 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. And also, we want you to join us on the Day of Atonement, October the 7th. Come join us as we celebrate the Day of Atonement. And also, the Feast of Tabernacles. Come celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with us on October the 12th. And on October the 19th, we will be giving the times uh, within the coming week. That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. O ye seed of Yasharel, his servant, ye children of Yaakov, his chosen ones. He is Yahuwah Eloheinu, his judgments are in all the earth. Be ye mindful always of his covenant, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Until next week, Shalom.